Welcome to part 12 of Things Set Right, which is our in-depth look at the Gospel of Mark. And if you're new here, new to Cornerstone, we would love to be able to welcome you personally and keep in touch with you to let you know what's going on at Cornerstone and encourage you in your spiritual journey. So if you are new here, start here. Go to cornerstonenh.org, click on that new here link or wherever you're listening or watching. Watching, You can text the word new to 603-225-2550. That's our church number. And let us know who you are. And again, we'll be able to welcome you personally and stay in touch with you, encourage you in your walk with Jesus. And today we are going to do something that I believe will be an encouragement to you. And more than that, a safeguard. Here's what I mean. Very often I hear of people who get thrown off of their spiritual journey, thrown off track, derailed because of questions that they have or circumstances that come up. And the really frustrating and sad and unfortunate thing about this is that often it is unnecessary. People walking away from their faith, having questions and doubts that they don't have answers for when it's in all likelihood, there's nothing new under the sun. Everything that you're going to face, every challenge, every question, somebody else has worked through it before. There are shelves of books about whatever issue you are facing right now. And sometimes it's just helpful to know that other people have struggled through those same questions, those same situations, have faced those same challenges. And if you know that, and you know that people have gone through, come out the other end, and have done so with their faith intact, and in some cases even stronger, then that can be an encouragement and help to you. Very often when we have a question or we go through a challenge, we feel like we must be the only one who has ever wondered about this. And the reality is that many people have probably faced something similar to what you're going through. That's not to minimize the frustration and heartbreak that you might be feeling, but it should encourage you because other people have walked through, got through to the other side successfully. And this has happened over and over again. And in fact, this passage that we're looking at in the Gospel of Mark today is going to do something very similar to that. This is something that goes back almost 2,000 years and people were dealing with the same kinds of questions and same kinds of issues and this is a safeguard to you. Here's what I mean by that. When I say that we're going to be talking about safeguards, you, uh, a lot of times lately, vaccines have been in the news. Usually the way that works is they give you just a little bit of the sickness, the virus, the disease. Your body responds in such a way that it creates antibodies so that when the actual disease comes, it recognizes it and fights it off. The newer vaccines that have been in the news work a little bit differently, but it's the same kind of deal. It creates something that your body will recognize as a foreign substance and then attack it and destroy it. And so when the virus comes in that outfit, it says, hey, you're wearing the uniform of a virus. I'm going to attack and kill you. I'm going to take care of it. And what we find in the scriptures is that the scriptures were given to us in part so we could recognize patterns, see what's going on, 
and be inoculated against some of the difficulties and trials and questions that we might face. And I think that's exactly what the author of the Gospel of Mark, John Mark, was doing in this case. He was telling us this story from Jesus' life in order to provide a safeguard. And the bottom line is this, that we, if we expect difficulty, we can escape disaster. Just by expecting it, knowing that it's coming, we will be able to escape disaster. Your trials, questions, problems do not have to be the death of your faith. And then at the end, I'm going to challenge you to use what we've learned and what we've seen in the scriptures to identify the difficulty so you won't get derailed. To identify, to recognize the difficulty, the virus that is trying to destroy your faith, and then you will not get derailed. So let's look at it together. This is Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. Mark chapter 6, verses 14 to 29. It's uh, the story of John the Baptist and his martyrdom. I'm reading from the New Living Translation. Verse 14, Herod Antipas, the king, soon heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. Some were saying, this must be John the Baptist raised from the dead. That's why he can do such miracles. Others said, he's the prophet Elijah. Still others said, he's a prophet like the other great prophets of the past. When Herod heard about Jesus, he said, John, the man I beheaded, has come back from the dead. For Herod had sent soldiers to arrest and imprison John as a favor to Herodias. She had been his brother Philip's wife, but Herod had married her. John had been telling Herod, it's against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. So Herodias bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him, but without Herod's approval, she was powerless. For Herod respected John, and knowing he was a good and holy man, he protected him. Herod was greatly disturbed whenever he talked with John, but even so, he liked to listen to him. Herodias' chance finally came on Herod's birthday. He gave a party for his high government officials, army officers, and the leading citizens of Galilee. Then his daughter, also named Herodias, came in and performed a dance that greatly pleased Herod and his guest. Ask me for anything you like, the king said to, his, to the girl, and I will give it to you. He even vowed, I will give you whatever you ask up to half my kingdom. She went out and asked her mother, what should I ask for? Her mother told her, ask for the head of John the Baptist. So the girl hurried back to the king and told him, I want the head of John the Baptist right now on a tray. Then the king deeply regretted what he had said, but because of the vows he had made in front of his guests, he couldn't refuse her. So he immediately sent an executioner to the prison to cut off John's head and bring it to him. The soldier beheaded John in the prison, brought his head on a tray, and gave it to the girl who took it to her mother. When John's disciples heard what had happened, they came to get his body and buried it in a tomb. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I pray that as we look at this sad and tragic story, 
that you would speak to us through it, that it would accomplish the purpose that you had in mind when you inspired John Mark to include it in his gospel. I pray that you would use it to keep us from being derailed in our faith, to expect difficulty and to avoid disaster. Lord, only you know how each to each person this message needs to hit, how they need to hear it, what they need to hear, how they need to be encouraged. I pray that you would do that work through the power and person of your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so let me just remind you, because a big part of understanding this, I believe, is the context. Remind you who John Mark is and the, the motivations, the context for his writing this gospel. Uh, John Mark, he's called that to distinguish him from other Johns. John was probably a uh, first name and Mark was probably a second name. Uh, he was, number one, a house in the household of early believers in Jerusalem. What I'm going to show you is that he has impeccable credentials. I reminded of you of this a couple of months ago, but it's just good to remember that you're hearing from a, a very trustworthy witness. He was a part of a household that was a part of the early church right there in Jerusalem. In fact, when Peter uh, was miraculously uh, able to escape from prison, he went to John Mark's house where the believers were gathered. He's also a ministry companion to Paul. His cousin is Barnabas. Barnabas is the one who went and got Paul, and they too went with him, with Paul, on his first missionary journey. And then he's the interpreter and secretary to Peter. So he has these impeccable credentials and was a part of the ministry of the early church and these two primary figures in the early church. Why did he write his gospel? Well, as the interpreter and secretary to Peter, he wanted to present Jesus as Messiah and Son of God. As we look at uh, almost every week, Mark 1.1, this is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. That, in turn, was a big theme, of course, of the apostle Peter's testimony. He wanted to preserve the teaching and preaching of Peter as an eyewitness to Jesus' ministry. And about this time, when this gospel was written, was about the time that Peter was martyred in Rome. So, with Peter gone, it was important to preserve his preaching. And he also is writing it to encourage suffering believers. Around this time, in the mid-60s of the first century AD, a great persecution uh, broke out against the church in Rome after the great fire of Rome under Nero. And so these believers are facing a very difficult situation and the and John Mark is writing his gospel to these people in very serious danger where their faith and their lives are even at stake and he's writing to encourage them. So I think that in part the reason that he's focused in on including this story about John the Baptist is he wants them to know that they're not going through anything different or unexpected. They can expect difficulty and by doing so they can escape disaster. So I'm going to give you 
three uh, points, three applications that are related to that from this passage. First, to stay focused on Jesus. What this is doing is taking the lie that it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you believe in something and correcting that and helping them to understand and to remember that they need to stay focused on Jesus. I said it already. This is the way the Gospel of Mark starts out. This is the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And Mark echoing Peter's preaching, does not want you to get confused or sidetracked. Jesus is the center of our message. It's all about Jesus. Peter, when he was speaking before the religious leaders of his day, when he was called to court to give an account for his preaching, put it this way in Acts 4.12, there is salvation in no one else. Who else? No one else but Jesus. God has given no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. In other words, Jesus is the Messiah. He is the anointed one that God has made the agent of salvation. If you're going to have your sins forgiven, if you're going to be adopted into God's family, if you're going to be a part of God's kingdom, the only way is through Jesus and what he has done. In the passage that we just read, in Mark 6.14, it says Herod Antipas, the king, had heard about Jesus because everyone was talking about him. People were talking about him and they were debating about his identity. And remember, identifying Jesus for who he is is a big part of Mark's purpose. So there was confusion and misunderstanding. In this passage, it talks about three different theories. It's John the Baptist. Uh, It's come back from the dead. It's uh, Elijah, the ancient prophet who is now somehow back among us. Or it's one of the other prophets. There was confusion, misunderstanding, and uh, a conflict about who Jesus is. And so Herod Antipas not Herod the Great, there's a big family, it's a little bit confusing, but he's a son of Herod the Great who ruled over a part of what used to be Herod the Great's kingdom. He hears about Jesus, uh, and there's all this confusion. But what Mark has been doing is trying to make sure that there's no confusion. And part of that is identifying who John the Baptist is, recognizing that he is not the Messiah and that he, in fact, pointed to Jesus. So let's look at it again. Mark chapter 1, verse 2, quoting from Malachi 4, 5, uh, uh, from Malachi 4, 2, I believe it is. Look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare the way. John the Baptist was not the Messiah. He was the messenger who was preparing the way for the Messiah. Back in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, God speaking, look, I am sending to you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord arrives. Elijah had been promised. Jesus makes it clear that John is this prophet like Elijah. It's not actually Elijah come back from the dead. It is a prophet like Elijah. And Jesus explains this 
in a couple of chapters later in Mark. Jesus replied, Elijah does come first and get everything ready for the coming of the Son of Man. Son of Man, he's talking, Jesus is talking about himself. But then he points out that this Elijah, this John the Baptist, Elijah-like figure, is not only the forerunner, he's a prototype. He's showing what the Son of Man is going to do. They treated this Elijah like dirt, Jesus goes on to say, much like they will treat the Son of Man, who will, according to the scripture, suffer terribly and be kicked around contemptibly. So he's making sure that people don't get confused because Jesus or John the Baptist had a wide following and people, there was no doubt speculation that he might be the Messiah. Uh, and so there was, they had to clear this up and make sure that everybody understood what was going on. No, he is the forerunner. He's the one that points to Jesus. And by his death, as we'll see, he is the proto, a prototypical uh, example of what the Messiah would do as well. But the important thing here is to recognize that it's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. And that matters because there is no other name under heaven given to us by which we must be saved. And so a big part of Peter's preaching preserved in the gospel of Mark is to make sure that we understand that church, the gospel, all of this is all about Jesus. And so I'm going to challenge you and ask you if you've been saying, you know, I, it doesn't matter what you believe just as long as you believe in God. If you've been saying, you know, I, I know I'm good because I believe in God. Well, that's not enough. The Bible says that even the demons believe that there is one God and shudder. Why do they shudder? Why are they afraid? Because they recognize that God, they are under God's judgment. And the only way that you can be saved, the only way that you can, you can escape the righteous, deserved judgment of God is through Jesus Christ. And so I will challenge you to say yes to the offer of salvation found in Jesus Christ. What are you saying yes to? You're saying yes to his to the forgiveness that he purchased on the cross for us. What you're saying is, I want what Jesus did on the cross to count for me. You're also saying yes to him as Lord, as Messiah, as the Son of God, the one who is the boss, the one who rightly rules and reigns in our lives, and, we, and he gets to call the shots. You are turning over, you are committing, you are surrendering your life to Jesus not to the universe, not to some uh, unnamed God, but to Jesus Christ, who is the author and perfecter of our faith. So say yes to Jesus. Let us know so that we can encourage you and equip you as you begin your walk with Christ. And you can do that a variety of different ways. Uh, easiest way, perhaps, is to text yes to our church number 603 225-2550. We'll be able to celebrate with you and equip you as you take your next steps. So, what is the what is Mark trying to do here in this passage? I think he's helping us to expect difficulty. We're, there are always going to be things that are going to try to throw us off of Jesus and off of our focus on Jesus, but that would be disaster. So, escape disaster. 
Then the second thing that I think this passage shows us is that we rightly expect some conflict. Now, what this does is it inoculates us against the lie that says that if I just do everything right, everything will turn out right. See, we have a good sense of agency, and when things don't go right in our world, we think about, rightly so, what could we do better? How could we have handled this better? How could we have changed the situation? And sometimes we feel a lot of guilt when we see things don't, not turning out the way that we would hope and not the way that we would expect. We always look and try to blame ourselves. But what this shows us is that even if you do everything right, you can expect some conflict. Why? Because we live in a broken world. And if Jesus, the perfect, sinless Son of God, came into the world and was opposed and experienced conflict and was even murdered by the ruling authorities of his day, then we should expect the same. And when we expect difficulty, then it won't derail us when it happens. Now, I also want to make clear that sometimes what some people perceive as persecution is just the natural and normal response to them being a jerk. So this is not an opportunity for you just to be obnoxious or offensive and then chalk that up to, well, people are just treating me just like they did Jesus. No. If you wonder about that, you're probably in pretty good shape. If you say, no, that's definitely not me, ask a friend. They may have a different perspective. But let's look at it together. In Mark 6, 18, it says, John, talking about John the Baptist, had been telling Herod, it is against God's law for you to marry your brother's wife. Now, it's a little bit confusing, but basically, uh, Herod Antipas and Herodias who are married now in this story, each had been married to someone else, divorced their spouse in order to marry one another. And so that's what John is calling them out for. That would have been a little bit unpopular, but it was also a little bit unpopular because uh, Herodias is actually uh, Herod Antipas's niece as well. Herod Antipas's father is Herodias's grandfather. Uh, so there's a lot to object to in this marriage, and John the Baptist is calling him out for disobeying God's law, for not following God's law. Um, and so as a result, you know, they don't like it. Uh, a little bit later, in Mark 8, 15, it's Jesus is, and his disciples are together, and it says, as they were crossing the lake, Jesus warned them, watch out. Beware of the yeast of the Pharisees and of Herod. Now, in another gospel account, in Luke 12, 1, we're told that the yeast of the Pharisees is hypocrisy. So there are these two things that we're supposed to worry about. Don't don't make the same mistake as the Pharisees. Don't make the, sta- the same mistake as the Herodians, the people who are followers of Herod. What are these two mistakes? What, are they, what is Jesus calling them out for? Pharisees, legalism and hypocrisy. What's legalism? It's saying, I'm going to follow all these rules and I'm going to make sure you're, you follow all these rules because I'm going to decide what's right and wrong and I'm going to hold you to my standard. 
the, fair, the yeast of Herod is the way that we're going to succeed is by gaining political power and we can dispense with a little bit of the righteousness in order to gain political power. So all these kinds of things, Jesus himself is calling out these things. There's nothing wrong with calling these out. But when these things are called out, when people are called out, when there's conviction, sometimes people respond with repentance and sometimes they respond with anger. And that's what happened in this case. So Herodias, Mark 6, 19, bore a grudge against John and wanted to kill him. And again, I think what Mark is doing is saying, look, if, when, you, when you make a stand for righteousness, sometimes it's going to make other people mad. It's the same thing that we saw happening to Jesus at the very beginning of Mark's gospel. He heals someone of a withered hand in the synagogue, and instead of celebrating it, the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. So this is something that's to be expected. When you encounter it for the right reasons, then you're not going to be derailed and think, oh, God is has given up on me and he's not with me. He's not watching out for him. He's not protecting me. No, this happened to Jesus. It happened to John the Baptist. And in fact, 2 Timothy 3.12, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Apostle Paul writing to his apprentice and and fellow pastor Timothy is saying, look, this is the way it works. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So you can expect that difficulty. And when you encounter it, it shouldn't be a surprise. It shouldn't throw you off your game. It shouldn't cause you to doubt whether God is with you. You can escape disaster by expecting you're going to have some difficulty, including a little conflict. But then lastly, I think the apostle or that John Mark is writing this to us from the Apostle Peter's preaching to tell us not to lose hope. I don't remember where I first heard it. It was probably decades ago now, but it's a phrase that has stuck in my mind and been very helpful to me in a variety of different situations. Don't doubt in the dark what you've seen in the light. Don't doubt in the dark what you've seen in the light. See, when darkness surrounds us, when clouds uh, are building in our brain, when the circumstances in life become dark and foreboding, it's easy to start to doubt the things that you believe, the things that you thought you know. But that's not the time to make that assessment. You don't doubt in the dark what you saw in the light. So don't lose hope. Even when you're expecting, even when you're encountering difficulty, if you expect it, if you know that's normal, if you know that Jesus' path to victory was through the cross, then when you bear your various crosses, you can make it because you won't lose hope. In order to illustrate this, I want to use John the Baptist, but uh, a part of the story that we don't see in Mark, this is from Matthew chapter 11. It says that John the Baptist, who was in prison... And I think that context is really important to understand what's going on. John the Baptist had all of these crowds coming to him. He had great acclaim. People recognized him as a prophet. But now things are not going so well. 
Now he's in prison. His, he is the one who pointed to his cousin Jesus as the Messiah, the one who was going to set things right. But setting things right did not seem to coincide with his being in prison. And so it begins to cause some doubt. John the Baptist, who is in prison, heard about all the things the Messiah was doing. He hears Jesus is out there preaching and healing and doing all this kind of stuff. He's doing Messiah-like things. But if he's the Messiah and he's my cousin and we're on the same team, why am I rotting in prison? So he sent his disciples to ask Jesus, are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? And maybe sometimes you've experienced something like that where you're going along and you're trying to do the right thing and you're following Jesus and, and reading your Bible and praying and, do, and still things are not right. You're still in prison. There's, there's something that's not right in your life and you're like, well, I thought, I thought things were supposed to just automatically go right and it causes questions. So you begin to wonder, did I get it right? Or do I need to keep looking? If John the Baptist was not immune to that, then few of us are going to be as well. So here's what Jesus did. Jesus told them, the people who had been sent from John to ask this question, go back to John and tell him what you have heard and seen. Just stick around for a little while. See what, see what I'm doing, Jesus says, and then report that back to John. Now, what are they going to see? Jesus enumerates it. The blind see. The lame walk. Those with leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. These are the kinds of things that would accompany, that they would have expected to accompany the breaking out of the kingdom of God. God's coming down and personally setting things right in the world. The dead are raised to life, and the good news is being preached to the poor. In other words, despite your circumstances, despite the fact that you're in prison, things are going as you would expect. All the things that were promised are happening, and don't be derailed. You got it right. You were right when you announced that, that Jesus was the Son of God, the Lamb who had come to take away the sins of the world. You got it right when you realized that you were the, the Elijah that was preparing the way for the Lord. And you can't let the circumstances that you're in now, the darkness that you're facing now, obliterate the light that you had received at that time. And then at the end, it's, uh, Jesus says something like, literally, blessed are those who do not stumble because of me. I like the way the message translation uh, pulls it out because I think that it uh, helps us to understand a little bit better. He's listed all these things that accompany the outbreaking of the kingdom of God. And then Jesus says, is this what you were expecting? In other words, these are the kinds of things you know what the kingdom of God breaking out would look like. Then count yourselves most blessed. You're here for it. You were right. You were in on it. And your circumstances, even being in prison right now, cannot take that away from you. So in this whole passage, Mark 
is including this story of what happened to John the Baptist to help his suffering believers who were being persecuted, hunted down, hunted down, living in the catacombs, being murdered for their faith, to recognize that they need to expect difficulty, but it doesn't have to result in disaster. It does not have to shipwreck their faith. If they stay focused on Jesus, as long as they expect some conflict and recognize that it's not unusual or abnormal, doesn't mean that they're necessarily doing something wrong. And just remember not to lose hope. Don't forget in the dark what you've seen in the light. Then, as they expect difficulty, they can escape disaster. So here's my challenge for myself, for you, uh, as we go through this week, to identify the difficulty so you won't get derailed. In other words, there's some challenge, there's some question that has been uh, bugging you and gnawing at you. Or maybe some circumstance has come up where you just don't understand how God could allow or cause something like this to happen. You've had, you believe that, that, it, that lie that says that if I just do things right, then everything will go right. And as a result of that, you're feeling guilty for something that is not necessarily your responsibility. It's just the outworking of living in a broken world. And even if you could do everything right, not everything would turn out right. So identify, recognize that thing that is trying to derail your faith and then combat it, inoculate it with the truth that you can expect difficulty and it doesn't have to derail or destroy your faith. Because the reality is that Jesus did come to set things right. And when we say yes to him, he begins with us and begins to change our heart so that we want to do the right things and have the power to do the right things. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect, but he has started something in you that he has promised he will carry to completion. Jesus said, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus did come to set things right, beginning with us and then inviting us to be a part of his setting things right. Will you join with him? Will you say yes to that invitation? Will you refuse to be derailed by the darkness around you and instead recognize the light and that the end of the story has not been written yet? We know how it's going to turn out and we never ever need to lose hope. Despair is always a lie. Jesus is in control and if you belong to him, he can and he will carry you the whole way through. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for the fact that you gained your victory through going to the cross through sacrifice, through apparent defeat. And ever since then, you have used the difficulties and trials in life to be a springboard to resurrection, 
to redemption, to reversal. I pray, Lord, that you would protect the hearts, minds, and faith of myself and everyone who is listening and watching, watching, that we would be able to identify the schemes of the enemy, the things that are trying to throw us off and destroy and derail our faith, that we will fight those things with the truth of your word and that you will give us the gift of faith, that we will never lose hope and that we will not be derailed that as we go to and take up our cross on a daily basis, that you will give us new life and resurrection life, the fullness of life in the midst of that suffering, trial, and difficulty. Because that's the way you work. That's how great your power is. Give us hope. Give us perseverance. We pray this in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen.